This is Fair Examination on the Mormon Faircast. Fair Examination takes a close look at interesting and sometimes difficult issues facing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its members. Dr. Eugene Thorne was a member of the psychology department at BYU during the 1970s and was involved with studies into what is called aversion therapy. In this interview, Dr. Thorne explains the studies that were done and helps clear up some of the misperceptions, false innuendo, and outright lies that have been told regarding aversion therapy. Dr. Thorne, welcome to Fair Examination. Thank you. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and um, your background with respect to the subject we're talking about today. Okay. Um, my name is Gene Thorne. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I was a uh, faculty member on the Department of Psychology at Brigham Young University. Uh, I started there in 1966, I believe, and uh, was a faculty member till somewhere around uh, 1980, 79, 80. And uh, I, while I was there at that time uh, in the early 70s, from somewhere around 1970 to 73, uh, I had become quite interested in uh, publications that were occurring regarding aversion therapy in a variety of places throughout the world, in laboratories and in uh, in various other settings, hospitals, otherwise, uh, and their um, impressive positive effect on changing the attraction of persons who had same-sex attractions. And I thought that it may be worthy of doing further research. It showed some promise, and I thought that uh, it would be worthy of uh, my efforts, along with others, uh, in trying to find how to improve this kind of therapy. I uh, conducted a couple of researches uh, that I reported on uh, at the time, and uh, probably prior to 1974, and um, uh, then I turned to a different subject almost altogether and became totally focused in that. Uh, since that time, I've been contacted by uh, people in your organization, and they've uh, let me know that there are a number of publications, some of which I saw, that make outlandish um, claims about uh, research and uh, therapeutic applications of aversion uh, in some sort of uh, compulsory fashion to those who were identified or identified themselves as homosexuals. This was never the case while I was there. I didn't know of anybody that was ever forced or compelled in any way by anyone, including the university or the church, to take part in such uh, research or therapy. Let's back up a little bit and talk about what we mean when we're talking about aversion therapy. Sure. Aversion, of course, means uh, something that is contrary to you or uh, against you or something of this nature. It means, it, generally in therapy, it means it's unpleasant. Some, some kind of therapeutic stimulus is used that is uh, experienced as unpleasant. And it's placed in the order of things that it follows something that previously was attractive. And if the aversive stimulus 
follows the attractive stimulus, over a period of time the attractive stimulus, the valence attraction, seems to decay and sometimes disappear. Uh, obviously this looks like it would be very useful for those who wish to change their orientation or their attraction to people like uh, same-sex individuals. So aside from homosexual attraction, what other ways has aversion therapy been applied into clinical practice? Well, there are a variety, of, and like I say, it's been a number of years, several decades, that I, uh, since I've been involved. But I know that it was used with a variety of things, like cessation of smoking, uh, eating disorders, um, attraction to inappropriate foods, uh, addictions, um, thought processes um, that were seen at the time to be inappropriate, either by the person himself or both the person and society. We're talking about when you say at the time, when you were doing this yes. research back in the early 70s. Um, at that time, how was homosexuality viewed by the yes. psychological community? It was clearly included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, uh, uh, psych di of Psychiatric uh, Disorders as a disorder, uh, an abnormality. And uh, so it was certainly an objective of most therapists to assist anybody who wanted to alter that designation to himself, him or herself. Now my understanding is that the DSM classification was changed in, I think, 1973 to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness. Yes. But that uh, at the time it was replaced with egodystonic homosexuality, which remained on the books as a, a mental illness, I think, until 1983. Does that ring yeah. a bell? Well, kind of. I know that the DSM had, went through several revisions, and in each subsequent revision from the one that was current in 1970, let's say. Um, and again, the DSM, the Diagnostic uh, Statistical Manual, Statistical of Manual. Dis uh, Psychiatric Disorders. And that's what psychologists and psychiatrists use as the uh, criteria to diagnose mental illness. Is that it's, right? It's one. It's one of many. Okay. And it's, it's commonly used. All right. And, and so what were you saying about the development of uh, the well, views of homosexuality in the DSM? Over the rev period of, uh, of time that you've suggested from 1970 to the 2000s, uh, it, it underwent several revisions. And in those revisions, the abnormality of, psycho, I mean, excuse me, of homosexuality was altered and was given different names. Uh, I can't even remember them now, but it, it was clear to me and this is just my impression, that uh, they were, that is the uh, APA, American Psychiatric Association, was under great stress uh, from a variety of groups, including the gay, lesbian, transvestite, uh, transsexual uh, groups, uh, who were becoming much more politically uh, powerful to accept that to get the psychiatric association and the psychology association to accept homosexuality as being normal or at least uh, find ways of protecting them because I'm sure some of them were, were abused or misused or something 
uh, nobody uh, that has a psychiatric um, classification uh, feels uh, th there's a stereotype that starts to occur, and some of them are negative. And so I'm sure they, they felt very badly about uh, being considered abnormal. And so they wanted this changed. Um, and without research, that any that I know of, without a, a, re, a, a sort of a laying claim to knowledge or understanding or to information that was considered scholarly, uh, they voted, just a, a straight-on vote, let's take it out of the field of abnormality or out of the area of abnormality, and it is no longer... Uh, it's no longer in the DSM as an abnormal behavior. So when things were reclassified, there's sort of an evolution the uh, DSM went through, and at one point then, egodystonic homosexuality was, was, was considered to be um, appropriate, an appropriate area of treatment. Right. Um, what does egodystonic mean? <laughs> well, I don't have that uh, particular uh, definition uh, in my head or even accessible at the moment. But it's uh, sort of like somebody putting themselves down. That's egodystonic. Right. So it's, it's the kind of um, experience someone's having where they are not happy with Precisely. the kinds of uh, feelings that they're experiencing and they want to change. Yes. They're right? unhappy with themselves as they, as they view themselves being abnormal, quote unquote. Right. So during that time period, the DSM recognized that there would be a legitimate area for a counseling psychologist to help someone who is experiencing homosexual feelings that they wanted to change. Well, not the DSM. The DSM only gives you the criteria for being egodystonic. <laughs> but, yes, egodystonic persons who were seeking treatment, uh, it was seen to be quite uh, appropriate for therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, whatever, to apply various uh, therapeutic modalities to helping this person change and become happier with himself. Was BYU the only place in the world that was conducting studies into aversion therapy at that time? Boy, as far as I knew, I was the only one at BYU that was even interested in the topic. And uh, I was made interested in it by uh, re reviewing the, the literature uh, from a number of different places and countries that were claiming to have uh, very promising data uh, that showed that uh, aversive conditioning was able to improve an egodystonic uh, person's feeling about themselves, for example. Right. I came across one study that was done by Feldman and McCullough in Feldman. 1965. You're familiar with that? I remember that name, yes. Mm -hmm. The study found that the success rate for aversion therapy uh, was approximately 60% with their patients. Which would be amazing. Yeah. and That's so, very good. So this is the type of research that you are coming mm -hmm. across. And so then at BYU, you're deciding to um, perform your See own... See if I can yeah, improve the status of the, uh, the, the, that approach, the effectiveness of it. Right. You know, as we were talking about this uh, before we started our recording, you uh, gave me an example in your personal life of, you know, sort of an aversion experience that I think we can all relate to. You talked about eating Fig Newton cookies. 
can, can you relate that experience again? Yes, I would be glad to. I, I had to be about uh, 10 or 11, I suppose. At any rate, uh, we were on a family picnic, and uh, when they everybody had abandoned the car to the picnic uh, place, I remained back, and I noticed that there was a still a bag of Fig Newtons, a complete bag. And I decided, well, I'll have a piece, and I didn't stop until I ate the whole bag by myself. It wasn't very long thereafter that I became deathly ill, and uh, I have never been able to uh, find attraction to a Fig Newton since. I, I don't even like to think about them. They make me queasy. Uh, other people have had food that's been bad, and a bad taste or a bad experience, and it's left them with a lasting impression. Those are all what we'd call in the realm of aversions, aversive experiences. Right, and, and so with the aversion therapy that you were investigating, um, there are different ways of developing an aversion in someone. Um, one way, like you said, um, maybe somebody's made nauseous because they're eating so many Fig Newton cookies. Um, what are some of the various ways in which clinical psychologists will try to induce an aversion towards some kind of stimulus? Sure. Take a, a smoker uh, who wants to stop smoking. One of the ways that w has been used uh, with some success or at least reported success, is by what's called flooding. That's a uh, flooding procedure. That is, have them smoke and smoke and smoke as much as they can until the taste becomes just awful to them. And they subsequently don't lose uh, or become sated <laughs> with their need for, for cigarettes. It, it, it's not as much. So that uh, they obviously are getting sick or uh, sated with the smoke and... Uh, that particular aversive experience uh, diminishes or the attraction of cigarettes. All right. What other kinds of, of uh, treatments are used in aversive therapy? Well, there are people who have um, reported uh, attractions to certain kind of foods, chocolate, I don't know, something like chocolate. And uh, they may use a, um, uh, a hypnotic or... Uh, visualizing experience where they, <laughs> they, they try to think of chocolate in its best form uh, in a big kettle with a person stirring it while the dandruff and the hair from his head fall within, the, <laughs> within the, the cauldron and the chocolate. And they get such an image of that that it, uh, it seems to de de well remove or deplete or uh, eliminate or reduce the, uh, the attraction to chocolate. Right, and, and so it's sort of a important. hypnotic process. Yes. Well, that, or it does, they don't even have to be hypnotized, but they use it as just visualizing. Okay, mm -hmm. a cognitive treatment. There you go. See, that's aversive. It's not attractive to think of somebody's scabs or, or uh, dandruff or hair falling into the food you're about to eat. Right. Now, I've heard uh, some reference to using uh, chemicals to help induce vomiting. Hmm. Uh, are you aware of chemicals being used? Yeah, um, yeah well, except, uh, yeah, I'm aware of it. Uh, it could be that uh, somebody is attracted again to something, some activity or some substance that really creates problems in their lives. I recall reading one where a person literally found 
attraction to fecal material. Uh, that's obviously considered abnormal. And so uh, when he uh, went to the bathroom, he would hold until he could receive a shot of some sort of, uh, see, what do they call it, a medic? I think a medic. It, it causes nausea within seconds or minutes. I don't know. And so that he just could not look at anything he saw, it almost was negative, maybe the bathroom itself or the toilet. But he was to think of the fecal material in the toilet or his, his uh, elimination of that fecal material. And that's what you're trying to create the aversion to. It's sort of, I want to come back to homosexuality. It's not like you want to have them averse to pictures of males or females or... Uh, even masturbating or even um, uh, finding a uh, uh, same-sex person attractive. That's not, it's thinking, it's the thinking process you're trying to create an aversion to. I want to sexually be involved with that person. And I think of myself involved in that while I'm getting a nausea or a producing substance or while I'm getting shocked or some other aversion. And the hope is that, like with the Fig Newtons, I no longer want Fig Newtons. And this person no longer finds pleasure in thinking of sexual interaction with another person. You're trying to, re- to reduce the ability to cognitively uh, become aroused. You can't become aroused without thinking. And it, and it, includes, it includes experience. An 11, well, an 8-year-old has all the equipment, but he or she is not able to become aroused, even while looking at a nude. Most, Most people, I'm assuming. But as they reach puberty, and as they're encouraged by their fellows to, oh, wow, look at this, they begin to acquire an attraction to that stimulus. Most of the young men I was associated with, uh, you know, they found uh, pictures, you know, of girls or something in uh, National Geographic <laughs> as being different, and uh, they found their friends were found that attractive, and as they uh, teased themselves with it, they then became attracted to these things. Well, that's not so abnormal. I would imagine every heterosexual has had some experience you can remember how he suddenly became aware he had these attractions towards a female, in the case of a male, or vice versa for the female. All right, I guess what you're saying is that a typical young man, as he reaches puberty, is going to start noticing that uh, he's, he's experiencing some kind of reaction when he sees some of these pictures or when he sees young women. Um, you know, as, they're, as, they're, as young women's bodies are starting to develop and he starts to notice that, and, and as he starts to act on that, that it, it starts or to... Or pleasure himself with the thinking. Right. It's the, the stammering and stuttering procedure. Uh, at six years old, most people don't stutter. Suddenly by 12, they're stuttering. It's a, just a happenstance. That's all it is. There's nothing physiological that's changed in most cases. It's there, something happens in their head. They tease themselves with the idea... Um, I'm, I, I may st- stutter, <laughs> and they do, and that reinforces I'm a stutterer, 
And so now, whenever they have a time they think about stuttering, they stutter. That's what the, I find a girl attractive. Ooh, the more I tease myself with that, it's suddenly girls become, start to become more and more attractive. It's a process that goes through at a very important time, usually puberty, and uh, it has long-lasting effects. Stutterers have always been difficult to treat, and yet you can. Uh, treat and speaking of aversion, aversion has been used for stuttering. So we didn't mention that, but at any rate, uh, the so the um, stuttering kind of thing is what I believe is what we're trying to change. Not I don't change anything about their tongue, their lips, their throat, their vocal mechanisms. What we're trying to change is their belief that they're going to stutter, because as long as they have that in their mind, they stutter. If you get them to recite a poem or sing a song, they do not stutter because they're thinking of the words or what it is, the rhythm. What are, and that's, it, that should tell you something about how we set ourselves up to have certain reactions. In this case, we're talking about arousal. If I don't become aroused by animals or by doorknobs or socks or shoes or some fetishistic uh, kind of object. Um, if I don't learn some, by some mistake, perhaps, that these are sexually attractive, I'll never have an attraction to these things. But I've treated people who are actually turned on and follow people uh, by looking at their shoes. Others by, I mentioned doorknobs, grasping a doorknob. and They, they found grasping a doorknob sexually exciting? Yes, Wow. I'll give you an instance. One of my patients, um, one of my patients uh, came to me, and when I finally got it clearer what happened, he said that he was masturbating in his uh, upper room. It was a kind of a loft, and uh, he had no door. There was no lock on his door, but he would hold on to the handle to make sure nobody could talk, uh, walk in on him. He did this while masturbating and becoming aroused. Soon he found when he taught, uh, touched other <laughs> doorknobs, especially ornate doorknobs, he became even more aroused. This just shows me the conditioning process and how the mind begins to, if you let the mind think about these things, as uh, some of our general authorities have indicated, it, it, then you're in trouble. If you keep yourself from thinking about them, you have no problem. All right. Now, you're not saying, I assume, that um, we're all completely blank slates. No. That, that we do have, you know, young men tend to be attracted to young women, and young women tend to be attracted to young men. But then, uh, like you said, as they're socialized with other young men, as they start pursuing certain thoughts or certain activities. They reinforce for it. Right. And so there's sort of a positive reinforcement toward what they may be naturally inclined to do. And in some cases, there may be positive reinforcement toward something that they may not have been naturally inclined to do. Not even a part of the sexual experience. I mean, what do doorknobs or shoes or boots have to do with a sexual experience? Would none of us even think of that? But by chance, I've told you about two people who developed those kinds of attractions. Wow, that's fascinating. So... Let's go back then to the aversions. We've talked about um, some of the different types of, of um, aversions that are used. Uh, one of them then is um, electrical shocks, right? It's the most easily controlled. 
So if you do use an emetic, how do you know when it's going to come and how forcefully? Now, doctors may be able to decide that. Maybe they have it down precisely. It takes 15 seconds and bang, it hits or something. I don't know. But and if you use noxious smells, um, how intense is it? How, how fast does it dissipate? You have no control over that. So you can, you can measure a little better exactly how much the shock is going to be. Is and how long it lasts. Yeah, when it, when it arrives and when it ends. Correct, precisely. Now, let's distinguish now between the electric shocks that are used in aversion therapy and the electric shocks that are used as treatment for things such as severe depression. Oh, okay. Uh, Electroconvulsive therapy. Okay. So sometimes people will call that electric shock therapy, but I think more recently it's been reclassified or the term has changed to electroconvulsive therapy. Is that right? Correct. What is electroconvulsive therapy? Well, I've never used it. Uh, Mostly only physicians can, Uh, but I've observed it. And uh, it usually is uh, an apparatus that allows the physician to put electrodes on close to the temples of a, say, a depressed patient, somebody who's a little more than comatose, but just really de- almost deadly depression, and uh, allow an electric current to go between the two leads uh, and then stop it. And they usually are uh, knocked unconscious. Uh, they have to be take care that they don't bite their tongues. A variety of things are done. And then they're allowed to sleep it off and in most cases, it is not even registered in their memory. They can't remember just how being in the, the room where they had the, the uh, ECT and uh, how it was delivered to them. And this is a currently accepted practice for tr- treating people with severe uh, depression. Well, I, I think it's still used. I don't know how uh, popular it is. I think it's lost some of its depression because we've learned, uh, you know, the pharmaceuticals uh, have have learned of medicines that are very effective and probably better controlled. Uh, and so I think most physicians use um, psychometric, I mean, it's not psychometrics, but I mean, uh, psychopharmacology. Right. And, uh- Xanax, Zoloft. Yes, you got it. Um, but, I mean, the point is is that electroconvulsive shock therapy um, is still used today. I think so. I, have, I haven't been in, in the practice where I've seen it. But, it, but, but when, when, what it does is it, it causes convulsions, yes, right? Yes, Okay. And that is absolutely not what we're talking about when we're talking about aversion therapy. None that I'm aware of. Right. Um, what you're talking about then is what? What kind of shock would be used? A shock that is uh, DC, a direct current, not AC, and with, is usually placed on the ankle or on the arm, perhaps. At, at what point on the arm? Bicep? Well, probably the bicep. It could be the wrist. Okay. Uh, it, the, usually you let them choose, but they. Well, I think most of my subjects had it on the uh, bicep part of their arm, and uh, they... See, I forgot the rest of your question, but uh, that's where it's placed, and uh, nothing goes through the head, and it does not cause convulsion. I'll take that back. On, on some instances, if they've got the electrode right over the bicep muscle, it, sometimes you can see the muscle uh, jerk, 
because it, it creates a, a, um, a movement of the muscle. But nothing dramatic. Uh, you, you can see a little flinch or something, and that's about it. Right. And so the uh, type of shock that is used, uh, is there enough juice to cause any kind of damage to the skin? Uh, I only can presume it could be like an electric fence around a, a jail or, or a prison. Uh, I'm sure that's really hot. So that perhaps could injure the skin. I've never seen that, so I don't know. But that which we were used, using was so uh, minute compared to that kind of thing that the most it would do, as I say, if it was on the muscle itself, it may get a, uh, a reaction, a jerk. A so you, may, you may see a little bit of a jerk in mm-hmm. the, the muscle to which the apparatus is attached. Indeed. So the, the arm or, or maybe the leg, but not the whole body. Indeed. Also, at no time when you were at BYU did you ever see anyone's skin damaged from uh, shock-aversive therapy? Never. Never saw anything. Uh, Not even a red spot. Uh, If anything, maybe where the cuff was, there might be a mark. But that is within a moment or two, that disappeared. Did you ever see anyone have such a a reaction to the the shock treatments that that it induced vomiting? Never, never. Okay. Nor did any of my subjects ever repeat or report, I should say, that they ever felt sick or that they felt in any way that was frightening to them. And they always knew in my research that if they ever had anything that made them feel that it was uh, too much or it was uh, not doing what it was supposed to be doing, or they, did, they wanted to stop for one reason or another, they could turn it right off right then. What is it that's attached that delivers the... Just, well, it's a cuff with two electrodes about, I'd say, an inch to an inch and a half apart. Okay. We talked about how those would be attached maybe to the bicep or maybe the ankle. Uh, so far as you know, did anyone at BYU ever use those attached to the genitals? That would be totally inappropriate, that you're not trying to condition the way the genitals work. They're working perfectly properly. What you're trying to condition is the arousal, the thing that arouses them and allows them to reach climax or have ejaculation. If they had even a bad taste in their mouth, that's never been reported, Not, not even a change of thoughts or uh, panic or something like that, I mean, to the sense that they became frightened. If they did, they were to let me know. They just turned the switch, shut it off. Right. So are you aware of anyone at BYU ever attaching electrodes uh, no, I, to that was the question I was trying to get back to. I'm sorry, I forgot. No, it shouldn't be on any sensitive part of the body at all. The arm, the lower arm, the wrist, the, the ankle, maybe even the, uh, the calf. Um, those are very simple, and I've never seen anything occur of a, an abrasive uh, reaction. Okay. And so when you decided to further research aversion therapy, how did you go about it? Well, I don't remember from the start. I remember that I had... Um, 
another psychologist from Salt Lake who had a, an, uh, a machine that would deliver shock. And they asked me to consult with them for a person who had chronic sneezing and another one who had chronic hiccups. And uh, we, we designed a way of delivering the shock and we figured it was a sort of neural circle that, because well, it was constant. You could time it. And so we wanted to interrupt the circle with a shock, and both, it was received national press, by the way, uh, the shock stopped these two people. They, not that they weren't together, but at different times. And so I, I, that was my first, I think, exposure with shock itself, and I found it very easy to work into a therapeutic kind of a scheme. Okay, and so how did you go about accepting subjects for your research? Well, most of the time I taught a lot of the advanced, well, the both undergraduate and graduate learning, <clears throat> excuse me, and advanced therapy courses. And while I was doing so, I would always, well, not always, but I generally uh, talked about those things that were interesting to me about learning theory and application of the principles, etc., and uh, it was almost, I almost always said I, part of my practice or part of my interest was in uh, helping those who were homosexual and that I was thinking about starting a research. So if anyone were interested in that and had this problem, they could come to me anonymously and I would keep their name anonymous. So the people that participated in your study were all self-referred. Yes, and I should point out, not all of them were from the class. People in the class knew of people who, were, who had these uh, attractions, these same-sex attractions, and, and probably told them, do you know about Thorne and, and his research? Would you want to be involved? And so I, they didn't, these weren't people just out of my classes. I think they were people who, people in my classes had let them know that I was doing this research. But I had, uh, I wouldn't even accept anybody from the BYU police or the ecclesiastical leaders from the administration. No one ever approached me from any of those. Right. There are some allegations that the BYU standards office was threatening people that, you know, if, if you don't go and participate in this aversion therapy uh, treatment that we're going to kick you out of the university. Yeah. Um, you didn't get any kinds of referrals like that. Absolutely none. I read that some of those things were claimed. I, I would be, I just would be surprised. I'm amazed that anybody would write that. I, somebody, I guess, could could have done it, but I, I don't know of any. Right. You're not aware of anybody from the BYU administration. You're not aware of anyone from the church who was... I guess, rounding up homosexuals and sending them out for aversion therapy. No, but I do remember that the church was beginning to, church by that, I mean, leaders of the church and state conferences. You're talking about and, bishops. Yeah, and, bishops and, and uh, uh, general authorities were beginning more than I recall before talking about homosexuality and how, that this was a problem in the church and the world and that... Uh, they people who had this problem should really try to repent or change their lives. And I thought, well, this is a, a contribution I can make in helping those who might want to do it. Now, no one, none of the general authorities or bishops ever came to me, but I know that that was becoming an open topic. 
Right, and so that would, of course, encourage subjects to come to you yes. and say, you know, I, I would like help with this. Um, this was all anonymous. Mm-hmm. You Well, I, I had a couple who were students of mine who were wives of people who were having this problem. Uh, their husbands had problems. Right, but, so but they were referred by... The, Right, you're you're not though um, turning in the names of people no. who who you are seeing to the university, is that right? Yes. You're not you're not, not consulting you're not consulting with their uh, bishops or their no. stake presidents. Um, so, aside from maybe a spouse that knew that someone was participating in this type of study, um, they were anonymous. The subjects were were not yes right it, published. Maybe their spouse would know, and that'd be it. Right. Now, they were then to come to this study, and uh, they would be shown pictures. No. Well, I, they were. Uh, it was almost hilarious. I, I thought, well, now, what would attract a male homosexual? And in my mind, I thought, well, now, what is really manly? And I, I, it, it occurred to me, football players... People that are in the muscle magazines and things like that with these huge bulging biceps, that that would be what they they would really be attracted to. And I showed uh, these and uh, to a couple of my first subjects, saying to them, uh, "Would any of these pictures arouse you?" If you and they laughed at me. <laughs> I mean, I, I was embarrassed. Uh, they just said, "This these turn me off," and so I said, "Well." I don't know what turns you on. I, only you do. So can you get me some slides made of pictures that would be of males and, and females that are attractive and could uh, maybe even be used to arouse or stimulate sexual interaction thoughts with the, with the pictures? And I says, but they cannot be uh, prurient. Uh, they can't be salacious. They must be, you know, I mean, if that's a nude, for example, it would be like something like a statue of David. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's a piece of art or something like that. So you're distinguishing between nude and pornographic. Yeah, the, if it was pornographic, it was never used. Okay. And so you asked them to bring in right. pictures of um, males. And that was, so, that was such a, a, an enlightening for me. I, I mean, I finally realized... We don't know what it turns these people on. We think we know what turns them on. They know what turns them on, what gets them to think about approaching somebody for an interaction or something that's inappropriate. And so I finally awakened to the fact that, you know, it's not just a muscly, manly-looking man. It, most of the pictures that they had were like college freshmen dressed neatly and cleanly and uh, they and they, they had nothing to do with the kind of thing I thought was what would attract them. Were there any movies used? Never a movie. Never ever used a movie. We didn't have facilities, and I don't think I would have used one. Well, I don't know that I wouldn't have if it was an appropriate subject, and uh, and you could decide on the place or allow them to deliver the shock to themselves as they observed the movies. So, in any event, there wouldn't have been anything pornographic. No. Describe for me, then, the process that they went through. You're attaching 
some type of apparatus to an arm or a leg that would deliver yeah. a shock. How, how did they decide, how did you decide how high the level of electricity would be? Well, we didn't. Uh, I, the most I would do is help them put the cuff around wherever part of their arm or their leg that they wanted to, they wanted it placed. Some of them would do it on their own, and their leg was very easy. It was hard for them to do it on their arm. Uh, and the, the cuff is still like a, a blood pressure cuff. I mean, you know, it's, it looks like that. Um, and as far as the intensity was concerned, uh, they were instructed, all right, now turn this knob, the red knob, and you deliver, it, it will deliver to you a shock that will increase as you increase the rheostat uh, in movement, and you stop where you find it uncomfortable or barely tolerable. So they had total control of the intensity. Not, not intolerable. So, oh, so no, something no. short they, of intolerable. No, no. They, they wouldn't have stayed in the research, I don't think, if it had been intolerable. But uh, at any rate, and then the uh, duration in some of the trials were like being a split second. So uh, you, you didn't make it very long. I think the longest shock was on would be maybe a uh, tenth of a second, I suppose, if I guessed. So Nobody uh, was strapped down to a no, table. No, no, They were sitting in a chair. The only thing that was on them was the cuff, and they had a little control there by their hand, and they had a switch to turn up the re- or down the intensity and to turn off the shock altogether. Okay. And so uh, did you use any kind of um, apparatus to measure uh, their physiological response to the photographs? No, I didn't. Uh, I, I asked them at the end of each uh, session, uh, the aversion se- session, to go through the slides and give them a rating as to how attractive they, how easy they could find these uh, thoughts of interacting with these subjects in the pictures attractive. And instead of 10 or 9, uh, they, they were beginning to report 3, 2, even none. I even find it aversive. I mean, it's negative. So there's uh, just a subjective report. Right. And then later, uh, some of my graduate students had uh, acquired, uh, I think it's called a plethysmograph. Uh, and they, as uh, described to me, they allowed the subjects to place this on, and it were male subjects, on their uh, penis. And it was, the more the penis engorged, was a direct <laughs> demonstration of arousal, uh, the more the attraction was there. Then no matter what number they gave us, those numbers gave them, you know, something about engorgement. Well, that doesn't happen unless you're becoming aroused, at least as far as I know. Right. But this was a, an apparatus that was attached by the subject. Yes. And to your knowledge, was any subject that was involved in any kind of aversive therapy at BYU ever asked to disrobe? No. No, I guess to put that apparatus on that plethysmograph, they would have to, you know, unzip or whatever. But uh, right, but presumably they would do that in private, and, and it was a screen, right, a, a screen like in a in a clinic that they could step behind. And, right, so they're given privacy, um, and so the, the the therapist was not involved in placing that apparatus. Not that I'm aware of. I, I never were, never have been aware of anything like that. And the people that I worked with. I just think we're too, they had too good ethics to do anything like that. All right. 
And so um, describe for me again then, the, once uh, each um, uh, apparatus was um, attached uh, and the photographs were collected, how did the procedure commence? Well, uh, the apparatus I was telling you about that finally we arrived at was able to, uh, we had a tray of slides from them. They maybe had 10 to 30, I suppose, of males, for example, and, and then another slides of females, which we used in the assertive training that followed the uh, aversive training. But anyway, so uh, when, the, when either tray was there, it would, once we turned on the apparatus, it would uh, bring up the slide and show it on a screen in front of them. And I think it would last probably about 10 or 15 seconds. And then the next one would come up. And these the are... shock would be given by the subject uh, you know, two or three times while they were watching each male slide. While they were watching the female slides, they were to be thinking about things that were pleasant and, and wouldn't it be nice to, to be accepted by everybody. And, you know, things that were... Uh, uh, not ego dystonic, <laughs> right? So positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, w- were there any uh, instances in which, to your knowledge, uh, therapists conducting this type of research would verbally abuse the subjects? Oh, I, I, <laughs> that would really turn me off if that occurred. These are people that we've been instructed by our li- religious leaders to treat with kindness and love and support. They're human beings, they're brothers and sisters. Uh, they have a condition that they, they have, there's no fault on their part. They didn't set out at 12 anymore, and we did at 12, to become homosexual or, or us to become heterosexual. It happened, whatever happened to them. And uh, so uh, they need all the support. I'm, I'm there trying to pr- create a more efficient approach to helping them to call them names or to, uh, I don't know, demean them in any way? Well, there was one uh, individual reported that uh, he was being, you know, somebody was swearing at him. Um, oh, is there anything like that you've ever heard well, of? Well, that would be aversive, I suppose. I hadn't thought about that, but I, I, I just can't imagine anybody doing that. And you're not aware of it Because that's coming from uh, the therapist, and that's now creating an aversion to the therapist. So I, I just can't imagine it would be used. And so the shocks then, um, when you were performing your studies, were administered by the subject himself? In most cases. In some cases, uh, they came about two or three within the 10-second interval. They never knew where. Uh, in the interval, they were what we call variable uh, response. So it, it might be a tenth of a second and maybe two seconds. So they never knew when it was coming, but they were instructed. Now keep looking at the picture and trying to imagine yourself interacting sexually with the subject of that picture. You, you won't know when the shock came. And uh, that was more towards the end uh, of my involvement, where we used that on a variable schedule because in learning theory, that particular schedule is much more effective than a fixed uh, schedule. So partly what we were trying to do here is figure out what works. Yes, and, and let me say one more thing about the reason we changed. If they have to think about, okay, now I've got to shock myself, their mind is not on the sexual thought. 
if they if it's coming when by an automatic process, the machines that we had, uh, they can still try to be thinking while they're viewing their subject, the, the picture, uh, of what they're not supposed to be thinking about and trying to get themselves aroused. And ultimately, while those thoughts are there, aversive things are happening to them in an unpredictable uh, fashion within, a say, a given interval. And so it just, I thought, made it even more effective, and they reported it was too. Because if they had to give themselves a shot, which, a shock, which is what they would did at first, um, they, they had, their mind was on something else, turning it on and off. And however uh, the shock was administered, the subject is the one that determined how severe the shock should it, be. What the intensity was, and they could turn the whole sequence off. I mean, if they were saying, uh, supposing they thought it hurt, I mean, more than they thought could stand, they could turn it off. At any time, they felt that this treatment was yes. not having the desired effect, they were allowed to quit. That's correct. Okay. Was there ever a time, I guess, in a um, sequence of treatments where the setup was such that the subject was supposed to push the button to cause the shocks? Uh, if, if there were that type of procedure set in place, would the administrator push the button if the subject refused to? No. No. However, not in the research, but in a few that I took on as patients of mine, I gave them a self, what's called a self-stim, and they would administer the shock to themselves at home. They would take this home, and they would find whatever they found attractive, but inappropriately so, and would have to deliver the shock at the intensity they set. Now, most of them reported that that helped, but it wasn't um, it wasn't something that uh, was prominent. Uh, let me give you an example of just how we learned in this process. That's what research is all about. I had one very tall, uh, uh, attractive, uh, blonde-haired fellow who uh, was very manly but he cross-dressed, different from homosexual. And so what he behind the screen I mentioned, he would dress like a female. He even put curters in his hair. And uh, while he was doing this, he would be giving himself shock. And I, he said it was hard to do in the laboratory, and so I said, well, do this at home. And uh, that didn't work too well either. And so I said, well, take a um, video camera and video yourself getting dressed and undressed inappropriately. And then we'll use that so that you're not having to worry about changing the, the slides and that sort of thing. He came to back to me and he says, I'm cured. And I, I was very happy to hear that, but I said, well, why? And he said, it had nothing to do with the shock. The shock helped. But when I saw how stupid I looked on that film, I can't get that out of my head. Now there's aversion. That's real aversion. That stayed right in his head. Now it teaches us something. That's why we need to do research on that. Uh, this was so. This is a big fellow strapping. I mean, can you imagine him in a dress and rollers and lipstick and what? I mean, he saw how silly and stupid he looked, and with that. That was more than the shock itself could do. What was the result of the 
the trials that you performed with respect to homosexual aversion therapy? What were the subjects reporting by the end of the treatments? Well, of course, I always hoped they'd say, wow, am I cured? <laughs> uh, there were some who said, I, I have better control of it now. I, I, I don't find this boyfriend of mine very attractive, or uh, uh, these pictures don't do anything for me anymore, or whatever, but I still feel I am a homosexual, or whatever. And, but I appreciate what you've done. It's helped me a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be glad to be a subject of yours again if you develop this further. And so, uh, you know, that was, uh, those kind of things happened. I, I had many, by many, I mean, of, of the total number, probably over half of the subjects who, I, who reported decay or diminishment of their homosexual attraction. Not, not that all of them said, I don't have anything anymore, no, no attraction. And most of them, I, well, I can't say it, probably 40%, I'm just guessing now, I'd have to look at my date if I had it, uh, probably 40%, somewhere thereabouts, uh, were reporting, I now feel comfortable dating this girlfriend of mine, and I've even had feelings like I would like to not only date but kiss or or embrace or do things like that, perhaps even have intercourse in a proper way because they were instructed that like heterosexuals, if they become heterosexuals, they have to control that behavior. I, I can't go out and just uh, have sexual experiences with anybody I find attractive. I have to be able to control myself there. So along with the aversive therapy, there was also... Assertive. Assertive therapy. Um, how did that work? Well, just as I described it, at the end of the aversion event, then, I mean, they're uptight, uh, you know, these are not feeling good, these uh, shocks, etc. And so then we have a period, at least 10 minutes, and usually longer than that, where they totally relax, think of all kinds of pleasurable things while observing uh, slides that they find at least attractive. And uh, I don't remember any of those being uh, nudes. Um, they were probably in, some were in sort of a, I don't know what, poses or something that uh, were uh, evocative. And, uh, they, were, they were sexy but not yeah, pornographic. They, they, you see them in every magazine. I mean, they're just, they're attractive girls or whatever, but uh, nothing, of uh, uh, any kind of pornographic. But something that would help to develop a sense of attractiveness or, or attraction toward females. Same as the, what I mentioned before, the stuttering. Okay. Once the stutterer begins to believe, I can find, I can control my stuttering, they control their stuttering. And it increases because they get reinforcement from that. And this is the same thing with the pictures. Once they find, I'm, hey, I'm finding women, girls, with attractive. Now, I can't be homosexual if I'm finding girls attractive. <laughs> uh, so it, it sort of began to, it needs a lot more work, but it began to get them moving in the right direction. With respect to any individual that participated in aversion therapy at BYU that you're aware of, were there any suicides that resulted from involvement in this therapy? I never heard of a suicide at BYU except... Uh, in in the years I was there, maybe one or something. I, I seems like somebody had jumped off one of the cliffs. I think it was a girl. Uh, 
maybe it was in Rock Canyon or something like that. But and totally unrelated to unrelated to therapy. I never. I mean, I've never heard of anybody in therapy ever even suggesting they were interested in that. Well, okay. or I mean, unless that was what they were there for therapy for. They were thinking of suicide, but that wouldn't be aversion therapy. You're trying to work them through. Well, that. the people who are coming to you for treatment are. Uh, distressed about yeah. about their condition. They, they're they right. ego-dystonic with yes. respect to homosexual feelings. And uh, so before they come to you, they're already in some state of distress. Having said that, you're not aware of anyone who committed suicide that, would, that participated in these, these types of studies. In fact, you're not aware of anyone who committed suicide at all d- during your years I've at BYU, aside report. from this woman that you're... you're yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it would uh, be amazing to me if they were. Now, uh, could they lie to me? Sure. Could they say, oh, yeah, I really feel like I'm heterosexual now. I suppose they could, but what was the purpose of their coming? Uh, or why did, you know, why would they go around uh, uh, telling everybody, oh, the BYU made me do this, or uh, I didn't do this voluntarily. He, he surprised me with this. I uh, these were people who were really, really serious about wanting to change their life. If they were disappointed, maybe it didn't work as well as they wanted it to be. I guess they would go away a little bit depressed or, or discouraged, but never to a point where I sensed I had to worry about this person. They, they were saying, well, I, you know, I still live with myself. I mean, I'll go on. Uh, and I would be, you know, disappointed that they weren't totally changed, but... Uh, after all, we're, we're right at the, in those, those days, we're right at the basic elementary stages of, of treatment programs for these people. Uh, we can't promise anyone that uh, they will be you know, completely cured. Everyone who was involved in aversion therapy at BYU was a BYU student? I can't recall anyone in, that was in research that wasn't a BYU student. I, they were all college I, age. Yeah, I, it could have been one of the husbands of, oh, I see. of a, a wife that had, uh, recommended their husband come in. It may be they weren't members. I don't know. I, I can't remember that. Okay. Nobody that was under the age of 18? No. Were you aware of anyone who threatened a lawsuit against you no. or BYU? No. Or, or any other uh, researcher, no BYU, BYU student, no other therapist, no other faculty member, not even the school. Oh, I don't know that BYU was ever, uh, you know, uh, sued. There was one claim that the reason BYU stopped uh, doing aversion therapy uh, research was because of threats of lawsuits. Do you have any information that would substantiate that no claim? No first-hand information. I, I mean, it's possible BYU is like any other organization that don't want to be sued. Uh, if they thought something was uh, out of character or was creating a vulnerability for them, I would guess they would be. It would only be smart of them. Their, their attorneys would recommend to them, "We, we better avoid this unless it's critical." I mean, you know. Is there anything else that you would like people to know about the aversion therapy research that went on at BYU while you were there? Well, I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot about it. Uh, I, ha- I, I still meet uh, people who are struggling with a variety of kinds of problems. I'm not a clinician right now. I don't I do that, so uh, I can, but I can sympathize with them. I, I would like people to know that if I understand the church's position, there's no 
vendetta or no interest, I don't think, on the church's part to uh, bother these people or harass them or harangue them. At most, I suspect that their, their ecclesiastical leaders would do their best to encourage them to try to control it, get it under control, and even if they have to go through life with this orientation or attraction, uh, do it without acting upon it. And I, I think people that think otherwise are not, I, I just, I'm, I'm floored that people would think that, they, that the, the church or BYU or even BYU faculty members would be interested in doing things to hurt homosexuals. Even the California movement of the gay rights and marriage, it's not done in a belligerent way. They have a belief about marriage and what the sanctity of it. And um, it doesn't include homosexuality. And they can't. They don't even have the right to say, well, we can wink at this. <laughs> they have to try to help people uh, change. If they want to change, you can't force anybody to. The other thing is, I, 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 it's my belief. I don't know that every therapist, I'm sure that there are some that would differ with me. I believe homosexuality, fetishism, transvestism, sadism, bestiality, whatever, is learned. And heterosexuality is too. And it can be unlearned. And it's so, there's, it's promising. Even with what little we learned, we found we were helping, and others that were publishing at the same time found they were helping people. For us to be uh, precluded from trying to develop something that would help those who want to be helped is as discriminating and wrong as what they are claiming uh, of BYU or the church or anybody else. I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty narrow-minded for them to decide that other people who have this problem, I'm not going to let them have any, any treatment. They should never try to change. That's... That's not the case. They can change. And we'll get better at changing them if people will give us the chance. Did you ever have people come to you and say, I no longer experience same-sex attraction after having been treated by you? Yes. How often did that happen? Well, I never kept score. But uh, for those who directly came to me and talked to me, perhaps six months, a year, maybe even five years after, uh, probably 20 came to me with more than just, thank you, Dr. Thorne. Uh, they said, I want you to know, I would like you to meet my wife and my children. I want you to know I am a member in solid standing with the church. Uh, I finished my degree or I'm working at a good place or then my life is uh, satisfying. And uh, I attribute some, if not all, of their effect to some of the, the aversive things that they underwent with me. And that, that wouldn't include just homosexuals. Uh, when I say 20, I could probably name you, or I could probably list another 20 or 30 who had bizarre kinds of aversion, I mean, uh, attractions such as the door handle and yeah, different fetishes. cross-dressing and fetishes and... Uh, a variety of others who have also said that. 
do you, do you have an estimate on how many people you've worked with total? I would guess a couple of hundred. Okay. As a clinician, but not in research at BYU. Okay. So, so maybe 10% of the people that you work with came oh, back to you and said... Uh, well, I'm talking about 20 people who were involved in the research have said things like that to me. Right. You introduced the fact that I treated others and a lot of problems. Right, but I mean, if you were you estimating that you worked with about 200 people who were trying to uh, overcome same, same-sex attraction? Yeah. I, people have tendencies to overestimate so as to be careful. Let me say 150. Okay. <laughs> uh, it could be more now. I, so I don't count them. Of the 150 or so that worked with you on, on overcoming same-gender attraction feelings, you estimate that maybe 20 of those came back to you years later and said, thank you, I no longer experience same-sex attraction. No. <laughs> Again, 20 of those that were in the research. The aversion therapy aversion research. Aversion therapy research at BYU. Of those that I treated as a clinician in private practice, I would say that would be another, how do you estimate? I, I would say probably another 20 or 30, maybe more. Wow. And so, aside from your clinical practice, are you aware, maybe from other practitioners or from what's been reported in the research, that people do report that they indeed have changed their orientation? Well, I was really up on this research (laughs) years ago. And at that time, there were people reporting. I mean, people of high reputation, with good credentials, that were believable, uh, reporting that this, their subjects or their uh, their clients or patients, whatever they call them, were changed, that they were now better, that they didn't have as much or even any same-sex attraction. I've read those things. I, now, recently, I I just haven't been in that part of the world of research. I don't know what's being written now. So to summarize, you worked with how many people with aversive therapy at BYU? Well, uh, probably uh, 30, uh, maybe maybe 40, yeah. So of the 30 or 40 people that you worked with mm-hmm. in aversive therapy studies at BYU, about 20 of those came back to you later and said, I no longer experience same-sex attraction. Well... I'll try to back off that a little bit to be sure I'm safe. I would guess at least half of them, 15. At least they actually came to me directly and said, I didn't hear it from somebody else. If I say I heard it from somebody else or read it, it would be higher. That's not quite as good, but it's not far off from what Feldman and McCulloch reported from their 1965 study where they said that 60% were reporting um, that they were having success with Good. the same-sex attraction um, I issues. just happen to remember that set of researchers, and that was one of the reasons I became even more interested in trying to uh, improve this approach to uh, helping homosexuals. And uh, I, I, th- I think I was impressed at the time of the, of the research with them that I was doing even better <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, I don't know. That well, sounds like I'm patting on myself on the back. Well, you know, I guess we'd have to go back and look at how they were counting uh, success and, right. and how, how many years or how many months had right. passed. Um, in your case, I guess you're saying that a number of years would pass where people came back to you with marriages and children and said, thank you. Yes. Yes. Either on BYU campus, that was a small number, but meeting them in different cities, California cities or Nevada, or, I mean, close by where I was, they recognized me, came to me. I didn't seek them. I said, do you remember me? <laughs> sure, I remember you, Joe. Uh, how are you doing? Let me tell you, I really am happy. And I said, to what do you attribute that? Words to that effect. And they said, much to what you did there at BYU for me. Dr. Thorne, thank you for joining us on Fair Examination. You bet. Thank you. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. Tell your friends about us and help increase the popularity of this podcast by subscribing in iTunes and by writing a review. Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Lawrence Green. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of FAIR.